Welcome to the Startup Competitors Podcast, where we talk with early stage entrepreneurs to understand what information they use to inform product roadmap, strategy, and market differentiation. Welcome to the podcast. Today we have Barry Wormser, who's the principal attorney at Wormser Legal, also a local angel investor and advisor to a number of early stage companies in town. Barry, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Why don't we start with maybe a quick overview of Wormser Legal and what you guys do there, maybe uh, by way of introduction, and then I'm just going to pepper you with a ton of different questions. Yeah, that sounds great. So uh, Wormser Legal, we're a transactional law firm. We just do business and real estate work just on the transactional side. So the easiest way to think about that for those who may not be too familiar with lawyers, we're not going to court. We're not suing anybody. We're helping folks build businesses do deals, so M&A activity, raise capital. So it's a variety of transaction work. Awesome. You and I have bounced off of each other on a couple of local companies uh, where I think we've both invested and or are uh, helping advise the founder. And then you're also an investor in one of our companies. That's right. Yeah. A lot of good opportunities. Always fun to engage with you. So. Well, there's a number of ways we could take this conversation. And thank you for being open to, unlike most of these where I'm interviewing a founder about their business. I'm more interested in the patterns that you've seen over time, both as a as an angel investor, but then I think in your legal practice as well. So I thought maybe we would start at the beginning of a company. Uh, so like formation, governance, I'd love for your thoughts around maybe some of the most common things you see with early stage ventures. Maybe, uh, maybe we could start with things that you see that are done well, and then maybe some things that, that you see that are maybe more common mistakes that could be avoided. Yeah. Yeah. Starting with the good is, uh, is, is preferable. Uh, though I'm probably be honest in telling you that we probably see more of the, uh, of the not good good than the good, you know, the, the best startup founding teams or founders, you know, they consult their advisor teams very early and they, they make it a point to understand the legal, the accounting and the other sort of third party vendor needs that their companies will have at the beginning and throughout and have a willingness to engage with us and, and, and accounting teams too. I sort of include uh, legal and accounting together, sort of these core components you have to understand. And the very best of those founding teams are engaging early and often and taking a real interest. And by real interest, I mean, it's not merely the engagement, but they actually try to understand what the legal implications might be, what the accounting implications might be. And, uh, you know, you can certainly just trust your lawyer or trust your accountant to do right by you. But the best results certainly come from founders who take the time to, to try and understand these things themselves. So I feel like I have forgotten what it's like to start a bit. I mean, we start businesses all the time, right? Which is why I've forgotten what it's like to start a business, uh, to be a first time founder and to I'm sure walking through an operating agreement with a first-time founder and talking about what a cap table is, what does that even mean? And um, should you protect IP or not? And what IP is protectable or not? And, you know, like, uh, I guess walk through, because you you probably do it way more than I do, walk through that initial conversation or or maybe even just a checklist of the conversation in your head when you're sitting down with a first-time founder. What are you trying to get across in that first couple of meetings? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'm, the first thing we're trying to understand is what their near-term goals are. Near-term being maybe the first three to five years of the business. And, and you could maybe even say for some of the businesses, that's, that's the long-term for them, or at least in, in the way the founder might view their time horizon. But we want to understand what their goals are from the first time we talk with them to whatever they think their exit might be or their transition might be and the stages in between. If we have a good understanding of what their goals are, then we can start talking about how the documents we might prepare and the plans we might make can be created to fit that vision. And some of these folks don't really have a great vision or they have a, you know, a vision that doesn't really align with a reality. So they might have a, um, an idea that they want to exit in five years, but nothing really that would meaningfully uh, allow us to understand how you'd get there. So it's like, I'd like to exit in five years. And it's like, that's great. Well, I'd like to do a lot of things in five years. Uh, but, but having a real keen understanding of the path to get there is, is, uh, is certainly prudent. But you know, for us, uh, just to continue the, the line of thought you, you had started about maybe an operating agreement, 
the, you know, one of the first things we might be thinking about is whether an LLC is the right entity choice at all. Maybe it's best to start as a corporation and, and um, having discussions to understand what they want to do and, and how they want to do it over the next two, four, five years is, is critically important understanding how, how best to make those decisions. But then let's suppose it is an LLC we decide upon and, and it's an operating agreement we need to think about creating. Then it's a matter of, you know, evaluating who the group is, whether it's an individual or multiple team members. And then, you know, what does they have? Do they have IP at all? If so, then we want to make sure that it's vested with the company and not the individuals. And if it's a group effort, we probably want to understand, you know, who's contributing what, when, and how are we going to hold them accountable? Where we have the most difficulty with clients, or I should really reframe that to say where our clients have the most difficulty, is when they've done no planning at all. And they haven't had the hard discussions with their counterparts on a founding team. And they just sort of think, well, we're all friends. We like each other. I trust them. We'll be fine. We'll address these things down the road. Very few things can be addressed down the road because things change over time. So, you know, on the front end, if you assign IP, everybody understands, listen, we're assigning our interest in this particular idea and this business plan we've created and everybody's on the same page. But if you don't really do that on the front end and five years down the road, people start having strained relationships, aren't talking with one another, maybe then one of the founding members says, you know, I didn't actually intend to assign this particular piece of IP and I want to go run in this other direction. Or, you know, probably more often than not, we see the situation in which one founder just doesn't contribute their time and energy as they anticipated, as they had anticipated even, but, but also perhaps as others had anticipated, which is more likely the case. And so having a firm understanding of what happens if, if someone shirks on their responsibilities, uh, how do you claw back an interest they may have gained from, from day one? But those are the things that we think about time and again, and we want our, our clients to think about time and again. It's just planning for the future. A lot of those examples were maybe with co-founders within a, within a company or, or the, the group of, of early individuals involved. How often are you doing that? with the group versus with them maybe one-on-one or individually? Well, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, it's usually one-on-one because usually there's a lead founder that, you know, the others may participate in some of the discussions, but not all. And so uh, the lead founder probably has maybe a majority stake or a sizable stake that might be slightly less than a majority, but they're the leader of the group. That's usually who we might engage with. Though at all times we're communicating with everybody because our interest is, is likely, not always, but our, our interest is likely in representing the company and not the individuals. Uh, so our job is to make sure that the company is, is best situated to succeed. And that means we have to make sure everybody's on the same page. But, but there too, you know, if a team doesn't want to really engage with the ideas, the legal ideas that we think are important, we, we, you know, we can't force them to do that. And we can't make decisions for them on, on how to you know, have equity vest over time or how to make sure that they have the difficult conversations on the front end. So we can only do so much, but we'll certainly push our clients to have those conversations and, and commit to those ideas, uh, or at least think about them so that hopefully they're you know, the best, best position to succeed. How often do you have you know, two or three co-founders coming in? Are they saying, no, this is a 50-50 venture, or we're going to split it 33% each way, or you know, whatever? And how, how often do you see that versus... You know, that no, that's clearly this is the primary equity holder and this other person's involved, but maybe to a lesser extent. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's very common for us to hear it's a 50-50 split. And there's, you know, usually accompanying that is this idea that everybody trusts each other and they're going to be fine. And they're going to be the, the aberration in the sort of pantheon of startups that have had falling outs between founders. We do have certainly uh, many scenarios in which, you know, someone, someone's the clear leader and they have plenty of, of others who are along for the ride in, you know, strong supporting positions, but maybe not the, they're perhaps not the same sort of level of leadership as that, that one principal individual. But, but it's, it's really the very best outcomes arise when any one of these combinations is willing to engage with the questions we ask. So let's say it's a 50-50 group. Then the immediate question for us is how do you resolve a dispute? Who, who has the ability to make the ultimate decision if you guys are at an impasse, which will invariably happen? Because the road, if you're at an impasse, a true impasse, where it's you know, 50-50 partners, nobody has a final say, the outcomes there are not good. You, know, you, you can either just remain at an impasse, you could theoretically seek judicial dissolution, which is a court petition where you're asking them to, to dissolve you because you, you can't make a decision. 
I mean, that, that, these are like really bad outcomes that you want to avoid. And more often than not, just like sort of board composition is, is there's some tried and true methods of, of trying to, you know, have founding members, maybe executive leadership members on a board, maybe an investor, and then maybe a third party who can really contribute to the business or some other sort of matrix that makes a lot of sense and is very traditional. Uh, I think it makes sense on the front end when you're devising who has what managerial rights to, to fully understand if it's a 50-50 partnership or 50-50 split of, an, of equity, who really is going to make these ultimate determinations? I'd say most are receptive to, to ideas that we, we press them on in these regards, but, okay. but not everybody. Some, some people really do want to wing it and trust in the relationship they have. And you know, I'm not one to question the relationship. But just the experience we've seen, it's, it's worth having a clear path to making decisions and, and a clear path to holding everyone accountable for their expectations everybody has on the front end. How much of your time is spent after the fact working with companies around those types of issues that pop up? And that's a poorly worded question. Maybe I'll, I'll share some of my experience. So I, I am, uh, for, for many of the companies that uh, we're, we have co-founders or multiple, you know, multiple partners within the business. In many cases, I end up doing some marriage counseling for, for those founders as they work through some of that. And not like the nuclear option of like, hey, we're done, we're walking away. But like just even navigating like, oh, we made we made this decision three years ago. Now I'm just now starting to feel some of the pain associated with that decision we made three years ago. How do I handle that? And because I've done that and it's not my job and I've explicitly, it's not my job and I've done that a lot over the years. I wonder how much of your time is spent, you know, helping companies early on try to prevent those things versus, you know, they're coming back to you, you know, months, years later and, and saying, oh, well, we've, we're that thing you told us about. We're feeling that for the first time. How do we navigate it? Yeah, it's a great question. I, you know, I, I would say that our the amount of time we spend on the back end where we're trying to fix the issue we wish they had addressed on the front end is not terribly common, thankfully for us, because we do try and make sure that our clients address it. But it's, it's common enough that it happens, you know, every, every now and then in a given year. And in those occasions, there's often not much we can do without the willingness of the parties to come to some resolution there. So it could be the most common situation, I think, is, you know, you grant equity in a business to a group. And one or more parties in that group, just they don't pull their weight. They don't show up. They don't do the work. They don't do what they promised. But then they're probably also unwilling to part with the equity that they really haven't earned. And so invariably in those situations, you have, you have to have the buy-in of that individual or you have to do much more risky maneuvers like diluting them by you know grants of equity to the founders that are pulling their weight. Or, or some other means, but those are risky propositions because you, you, could, you could easily be the subject of greater liability risk uh, if it's a claim that you know, you're doing those kinds of additional grants in an untoward manner and uh, in, to people that have not, have, they haven't earned it themselves. You know, those, are, those are really just the scenarios you want to avoid. We've had countless situations over time where a new client comes in, maybe exactly that situation you're describing, but they don't really tell it to us in that way. They say, you know, we need an operating agreement. It's like, okay, great. Well, we'll be happy to help you draft that. And then you come to find out that what they're really talking about is half the people are not doing what they want and they want to change the equity structure. And it's like, well, no drafting of an operating agreement is going to fix what you need to be fixed. And so you're left with bad options. That's why doing all these things on the front end is so valuable because your options on the back end are not good. And having the hard conversations on the front end, it's really no different than any other relationship. If you're doing the relationship for the long haul, you best understand what you're getting into and what the relationship's going to be. It's like a marriage or any other sort of institution that's really meant to last a long time. If I go into, say, the marriage I have with my wife, not fully understanding who she is, that's, that's, a, tough, that's a tough road, perhaps, going forward. Now I'm speaking as somebody who dated my wife for nine years before marrying her, but so <laughs> take that for what it's worth. But um, I think truly these these relationships are are no different than any other long term relationship where you really need to understand what you're bringing to the table and what the expectations are for everybody. I'm testing that against my experience. <laughs> I well, I'm thinking of like Michael and I and Jason and like the the original founders of Developer Town, two of which aren't here anymore. So maybe that to your point, but I, you know, I, I know we had all worked together in the past, but 
I would not say I knew them in the same way that you think of dating your wife, right? Like, I certainly had no context for, you know, back when we were working together at Interactions, what it would be like to be a partner with them. Sure. Right. And, and what that would look like. Um, so there was just a lot of, I feel like I got lucky, right? Because it was just a lot of dumb trust that mm-hmm. turned out to be well-placed. Right. But it just turned out to be well-placed. I don't know that it, you know, was probably knew through no, no fault of mine that they ended up being great people that I wanted to be associated with for 10 plus years. Well, and I don't know if you need to do any kind of, you know, formal relationship building or interviewing to understand the individual as much as you do. You need to build in the mechanisms so that if the trust fades and your ability to move forward as you anticipated together and the way that you all agreed upon on the front end, if you have the mechanisms in place to part ways appropriately and efficiently, yeah. that is what is important uh, because no one realistically is going to uh, have the time or energy to to do what what I somewhat suggested, which is really try to find out these the the core of the individual in this deep way. That's not really what I mean. It's more a um, a matter of ensuring that those mechanisms are in place in case things go sideways. Yeah, and we had that in but. Uh, and, you know, we've had off and on over the years, we've had a number of partners now come and go. And all, I feel like the structure we put in place and have revised a little bit over time, but largely the same structure has worked really well for that. Yeah, and that's, and that's great. You know, and it sounds for your team, it's a matter of having the mechanisms you need. Uh, yeah. When someone comes and goes, you have a plan in place and you can execute on that plan. It's just challenging when, uh, again, to borrow that example I mentioned earlier, which is, you know, client comes to us and says, I want an operating agreement. And they've been working for two years with one another with nothing in in writing. And they agreed to an equity split that really just does not mirror the effort and contributions of the individuals. And they want to change that. Well, unless you are writing this down, unless you're putting pen to paper, you have a very difficult time holding people accountable. How common is that? How often are you being brought in? And in particular, I'm thinking of technology companies. I know you work with more than just technology companies, but... In a lot of cases, I can see a strong argument that says, well, it's a, it's a tech company. We might not like why spend the money on legal until we know it's going to be a real thing. Like if, if, we, if we can't build it, we certainly don't need an operating agreement. If we can't sell it, we certainly don't need an operating agreement. So let's, let's wait, build it, get that first customer. And then at that point, we can go back and paper everything that we need. How common is that versus somebody showing up early on and saying, Hey, we've got an idea. We're about to go down this path. It's going to be nights and weekends for both of us. But, you know, we felt like we wanted to do the right thing and get this done up front. Which, which of those do you see more? We see far more often the, the latter, which is, you know, folks who have uh, an idea, maybe a team and they want to formalize it through appropriate legal means. Okay. We definitely see, is that because that's reflective of the market and what happens more? Or is that more of a reflection of you and your practice and that those people are more likely to seek you I don't out? know. It, I, it probably column A and column B. I, I, think, I think certainly we're – I don't think we're attracting people who are flying by the seat of their pants. You know, I, I, we, we, we have folks who are moving really quickly and, and, you know, they sort of forgot about legal along the way and uh, and – we we understand. We understand that folks want to really move, and they they the idea itself could be really time sensitive, and there could be pressure to get it up and running before it's maybe ready, just because there's there's a likelihood of competition or interference in what they're trying to achieve, and they're trying to capture the moment. Uh, we certainly understand those things. I would say, on the whole, saving money at the expense of good legal documentation is a tremendous mistake. I don't think the cost of legal work on the front end for really any setup you could you could think about for the most sort of common startups is cost prohibitive. And most firms are willing to work with you uh, to, to make sure that it's reasonable or, or maybe feasible is the right word, perhaps, uh, for the team to afford it. Uh, but let's say it's, uh, you know, $2,500 to get up and running with all the things you need for a new company, whether it's a corporation or an LLC or some other uh, entity type, that money is, is the most valuable money you're going to spend on the front end of your project. It's a, it's a bit of a sunk cost. You pay for it one time. You have ongoing legal needs, of course, but like really just getting that front end correct is so critically important. I think about, say, 
you know, the if you're doing a, a restricted stock purchase agreement, which you, usually is the front end documents you might be doing to convey the interest of equity from company to the founder, it's an actual purchase and sale. You know, it's usually for nominal consideration because the company has no value on the front end. That kind of document also includes this extraordinary IP language that is so protective for the company, and that will be important for the later VCs who are asking for this document and expected, hopefully, to have been done on day one. And so, yes, perhaps the the initial cost of legal work, it's expensive, and I, I don't mean to pretend that it isn't, but having a having a good sort of set of guidance from your attorneys to tell you you need this restricted stock purchase agreement for these reasons, you know, the five reasons that may exist to, to do it, it's worth that money. It's going to protect the company. It's going to protect the, the individuals. It actually will almost force the conversations that I'm suggesting, which is the front end, difficult conversations between the founding groups and its and its constituent members to make sure that they're just in it for the long haul together with the strictures in place in case things go poorly or sideways, it's just the best investment you could probably make on the front end uh, because the long-term potential for for risk is very high if you don't do it. Because if the thing takes off, then you have risks left and right. Uh, there's perhaps an argument that one might make, which is if we're all swimming in a crazy amount of money, what do we care that we just didn't figure out how to make it work on the front end? I think that's a pretty cavalier argument that I wouldn't subscribe to. Probably matters even more than Yeah, it probably does. But the, in the grand scheme of things, you know, the amount that it would take to get up and running is, is pretty pretty nominal. I, it's been my experience as well. I, I will say I've seen I've seen some companies overpay dramatically for some of those early formation docs. The the and and that's mostly because they just went to the wrong person. My advice which you're conflicted in this because you do this, but it would be to find somebody like you who works with early stage companies all the time, practices that kind of law. And it, you know, this is the 30th time they're doing it, not the first. And I think all the places where I've seen people go sideways on spending too much money up front, it's they found a lawyer who was doing this maybe because they knew them was doing this as a favor and it, yeah. it just ballooned past well past what it should have. The best advice we can give is twofold. The first is to ask around people who are well-versed in startups or entrepreneurship, ask who they like and who they would recommend and ask more than one person. And if you start hearing the same name, then that's probably a good bet. That's, that's how a lot of people have found us. We're very grateful that people might think of us, but there's nothing more gratifying than when someone says, we got your name from a lot of people. That makes us feel really good about the, the work we perform. The second piece, though, is to, to ask how much things will cost, uh, you know, to the individuals you might engage with and ask maybe multiple attorneys what things will cost. So it's not merely interviewing the one person that was recommended, but also interviewing maybe one or two, three others who may have also been recommended and find the best fit. I... I I'm real bullish on the legal market here in Indianapolis because we're chock full of a lot of really good lawyers. There aren't a ton of entrepreneurial lawyers, but there are a number that are really quite talented. And so oftentimes, I think it's not so much finding the smartest person or the person with the the best resume or CV. It's really a matter of, well, these people will all do a, a really good job for you for the most part. Find the person that you can really identify with, that you would actually like to call. We, you know, our firm has three core values. Uh, I, I don't know every other firm's core values, but I wouldn't be surprised to the extent they even have them, that these are very similar to what they care about. We care about great work product, great client communication, and fair billing practices. And you should ask the question, what, what, what's your firm care about? What do you, what do you, what, what's a priority for you as a lawyer? So long as you're really interviewing the folks that have come recommended by people you trust and who are well-versed in this space themselves as an entrepreneur then just take the extra time to, to interview two or three and really find the best fit from a personality standpoint, because you really want, you're going to have a lot of conversations that are difficult. You might as well be doing it. Someone you like talking with and not someone that you're terrified of calling or that spooks you or intimidates you. And we actually are a bit relieved when someone comes to us and says, Hey, we're actually talking with some other lawyers and we're going to figure out the best fit. That's, we don't, um, on an individual basis, we really don't care if someone, you know, comes to us or someone else. We genuinely care if they go to the right fit. And so it's incumbent upon those looking for a lawyer to find, you know, find the right fit for them. This episode is brought to you by Full Stack PEO. 
Most founders start companies because they figured out a better way to solve a problem or serve a need, not because they love tracking payroll, filling out compliance forms, and explaining employee benefits packages. And yet, all that stuff still has to be done. That's why there's Full Stack PEO. Full Stack PEO specializes in turnkey HR for emerging companies, not just those core services, but advice and expertise that help founders maximize employee potential. Curious? Find out more at fullstackpeo.com. Let's switch gears away from formation, talk about fundraising. Mm -hmm. Maybe we'll start with current trends. What are you seeing in the market right now from a fundraising perspective in terms of the types of transactions, maybe in terms of structure, size, things like that? Yeah. On the front end, the early stage raises, we're seeing um, a greater utilization of alternative methodologies like safes primarily. I mean, safes have really uh, had a dramatic rise in the last few years. And those are, safe is a term of art that means simple agreement for future equity. So it it is uh, very similar to a convertible note, but it functions without the debt piece, which is actually really favorable for the company. The reason it's favorable is, you know, if you're a debt holder and convertible notes are a type of debt, debt instruments carry with it foreclosure rights, among other things, and they have maturity dates and interest that accrues and safes don't have those features. And so they're actually really, they're nice for companies and we found them to be more heavily utilized in the last five years than at any time before. They were very popular on the coast for almost exclusively on the coast for a time, but then they really kind of have made their way to the Midwest and, and all, all markets in the US. So we're seeing a lot more saves. I think we're actually seeing a lot more debt as well in the early stages. So, you know, there's kind of a lot of tried and true paths that you might see most common used to be, I think, you'll do common equity on the first raise, maybe a bridge note if you need it, but then you'll move into, you know, a preferred offering in a series A. And now I think we're seeing a lot of folks kind of split the difference between the seed, seed funding and the bridge debt. So they might just go directly to convertible debt. We see a lot more of that than we used to, I think. But a lot of the terms are still very within, I think, the range of things we used to see. So the, the convertible notes here in Indiana anyway are, are often uh, contain the same sort of terms I would have seen seven years ago. You know, maturity dates that are based around the IEDC's venture capital uh, tax credit program. And that VCI tax credit program is requires a three-year note. So we'll see, still see those terms and we'll still see probably an interest rate of 5 to 7%. So some of those things are, are very, very traditional norms. Where I think we are seeing some progress, I would say, I don't know why this is necessarily, but it's good, is that when those founders are using uh, convertible net early, they're, I think, doing a better job of ballparking out what that looks like down the road. It used to be we would you know, demand of our client that they put together their own spreadsheet to understand how, you know, at conversion, what it looks like under a variety of scenarios. And some of them in the beginning might say, yeah, 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 no, we understand, we're good. And then we'd say, okay, fine. Did you actually put a spreadsheet together? And they say, no. And then when we ask them to, they, they start saying, oh, I'm actually selling off. If things go probably in the median range of possibilities, I'm selling off 40% of the company. I had no idea. They, they, in their minds, thought they were doing you know, 10, 20% at the max. And so gaming out what could happen is, um, I think we're seeing a little more of that on their own, which is tremendous and I think necessary. So rather than us imploring them to do it, they're doing it themselves. I'm trying to think if there are really any other you know, major trends we've seen. We're certainly seeing money from outside of Indianapolis at a greater clip, which is really positive. How much do you think the transferable clause now for the tax credit will affect that going forward? I think it's been positive. I mean, uh, it certainly won't hurt. There's probably a knowledge gap that, that may be in place, although companies will probably promote it when they get the VCI tax credit. But that requires a, a touch more sophistication to understand it at all. But if you're a founder and you can... Um, you can make use of the additional resources that might be thrown your way and the additional allowances. I mean, all the better. You know, there's been this um, uh, focus on sort of Midwestern entrepreneurship by coastal uh, leadership. And that's been, that's been fun to see. Indianapolis obviously has, I think, grown well beyond just the SaaS marketing products that we had been generating for a long time. You see a lot of really cool, interesting startups in a variety of sectors. So I, there, it's a real exciting time right now, I think, in, in the Midwest and in Indianapolis in particular. And I think the capital, you know, people probably have said this on this podcast uh, a dozen times before, but, you know, capital will find good projects. And a founder or a company that laments that they're not getting funded because they're in Indianapolis, 
needs to probably do a healthy look in the mirror to understand why they're not getting funded. It's, it's not merely because of your location. Uh, location may not get you as many meetings, and it may not uh, be as easy to find all the folks that um, might be interested in your project. So it might require a little legwork, but good projects get funded. And that's, that's a truism that's been uh, around since the you know, very beginning of funding at all. It's, I'm bullish on where this is uh, headed for, for the Indianapolis market, for sure. Biggest gotchas or mistakes you see in financing? Giving away too much too early. Often these rounds of investment, you give away, let's say, you know, you give away something on the front end. The expectation for the next investor might be to take that and then add something more to it that is preferential to the investor. Uh, let's say, you know, the, the most common path that we talked about earlier would be, let's say, in a friends and family round of investment on the front end, you might just be selling common equity. So everybody's in the same shoes. And the expectation would be down the road that if you're coming in later in the game when you're doing a preferred round of investment, well, you're escalating the, the investment terms for the investors so that they get a little bit better deal. They get uh, perhaps a preferred non-participating piece of equity, which means that they get some some rights at liquidation. But what we see sometimes is folks give away a tremendous amount, and it could be born out of either necessity or they just don't know any better, where they give a tremendous amount away very early. So we're on the same page. Tremendous amount. Is that like they give away 60% of the company or is tremendous amount they give away 30% of the company? Well, in fact, I'm actually, um, it could be the the amount of equity they sell off, but Really, I'm talking about the rights that might be given to the investor. That is, I think, the the precarious position right. that the investor... I'm glad I asked. Yeah, okay. no, well, so it's a good question. Founders, I think, are... Um, many do a great job of planning for the long term, and many do not. And those that don't plan for the long term do not think about the implications of giving, you know, participating preferred equity to the first investor that's in the door. Because I would say there are a wide range of, of the types of investors that exist out there. But there are some that will see no problem with taking full advantage of a naive entrepreneur and who will just exact as much as they can out of the, the round of investment that they're engaging in. Whether or not it might encumber future investment rounds for that company, they don't care. Because what, what one investor gets, the next investor is going to assume that they can get two. And if you're giving away a tremendous amount on the front end, that's what I mean by giving away. Giving away these rights could be additional prefer- preferential rights. Then you're really handcuffing yourself to either that position for a longer time horizon than you really want to or earlier than you wanted to. Or you're going to have to have a hard conversation at a later time to ratchet it back. And that's not easy at all. It's really no different than not planning uh, around your founding group and who's contributing what and when. We see this uh, with, I wouldn't say regularity, but we see it from time to time. And it's, it's you know, it's well-meaning. It's, I think these, these, the leadership in these early stage companies who might be, well, we're, to borrow, you know, the term I keep saying, to giving way too much on the front end, they're thinking we need capital to go from A to B or B to C or whatever it might be. And they're not thinking about how this could affect things a year down the road, two years down the road. The capital they need now is the most important thing. And I totally get that, except that it will cause extraordinary complications or harm them economically down the road. And uh, we have clients who, who from time to time present deal terms to us that are prohibitively against the interests of everyone involved in the company and the company itself. And sadly, there are investors out there who have no problem asking or demanding for those things and who can theoretically get it because the the founders are a little too green to realize that they're getting taken advantage of. Are there any like generic heuristics you use when you're trying to coach a founder through raising money for a venture as a, as, a, as just their starting point for thinking about it? Uh, well, let's do this. So my opportunity for free legal advice, <laughs> we're going to go raise money for startup competitors right now. We're not. Yeah. yeah. It's not a venture backable company yet. But let's say yet. yet. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but let's say we are. So I want to go raise money for startup competitors. I come to you to, to start that conversation. How do you even get me to start thinking about that, com- that discussion? Yeah. I mean, I think we'd probably start with some basics about what kind of thing you were th- planning on selling to raise the money. So are you thinking about selling equity in the business? Are you thinking about debt or a safe or some alternative means to raise the capital? And then I want a better understanding of what the long-term capital needs might be. So let's say now 
this venture needs $500,000. Okay, great. Well, is that the only raise you may need? Will you become self-sustaining it, you know, at the next, once you get that 500,000 or will you need more capital down the road? And it's really difficult sometimes for founders to know this, but if we can get a clearer idea as to what the next round would look like, then we can plan backwards for what the best plan of action would be. So if you say, yeah, we need 500 now, but I know in a year and a half, we're going to need 2 million or 5 million or whatever it might be. All right, well, then we can build a plan to how to get there. And we can also ideate on what that looks like from a cap table position, from how the equity will change over time. And... The more tools you have to understand what that looks like, the more time you spend on cap table scenarios as they might play out from a variety of, of possibilities, the better position you're going to be in to confidently approach what you're, what you're engaging in, both on that initial raise and the raises thereafter. So one of the big things that I think about when approaching an investor in a company is their, their capital for sure, you're raising money. But you know, for me particularly at the stage that I'm at, I'm also trying to think of like, what can I learn from this person? What kind of connections are they going to have for this company in, in particular that I'm raising money for? Uh, are we going to be doing a thing down the road where that person's background and experience is going to provide a different kind of value because they understand the market, they understand how deals get done in that space or you know whatever the case may be, right? So like, what are the other intangible things that that investor is potentially bringing with them? And for me, in a lot of cases, I think, think about when I think about a company that's going to be doing multiple raises, one of the things that feels very attractive is I want to bring in an early investor who can then help coach and advise me in those later fundraisings, because in theory, they're more experienced than you, right? If they're an investor, they probably have way more reps yeah. uh, in seeing those deals than, than you've seen. But then I've also seen that from the other lens of where I've seen founders get conflicted advice from their existing investors, right? So if you go to your existing investor pool and you're like, oh, hey, we're getting ready to go to our Series A. We think we're going to raise $3 million. I've seen existing investors go back to those founders and say, whoa, slow down. Well, maybe we could give you some notes in the short run. Maybe you don't need a Series A this year. Maybe we could go to a Series A next year as they very, very much cement in their position, build up more you know, future... Uh, notes that are going to convert into preference and then, you know, like yeah. very much positioning themselves for a better outcome in yeah. the long term. And it's hard to say from a third party position, it's hard to say whether that's the right thing or not. Right. Like you just, you, you can just sometimes clearly see that that could be a conflicted, yeah. to, you know, piece of advice. How often do you see that and how do you navigate that as uh, as legal counsel when you, when you see it, or if you think you might be seeing it, cause you, it's, yeah. it is kind of an unknowable thing, but yeah, that's true. You kind of know when you, when it's happening, that's when you know, right? Until yeah. then, it's, it, you don't know exactly what the investor might be bringing to the table uh, when really push comes to shove. So really no different than picking your lawyer. If you are in a position where you can truly evaluate the uh, person who wants to give you capital, that's that's a really smart thing to do. So not every angel investor or VC firm is looking out for your best interest. They could be narrowly looking out for their own bottom line, which they have a right to do, but they might be doing it at the expense of the company and its founders in such a way that nobody is winning, uh, except for perhaps them. And there's also, you know, something to be said for, let's just go with angel investors just to pick on them. You know, to be an angel investor, presumably you have some kind of wealth that allows you to make investments, but I would tell, or at least caution um, entrepreneurs who are raising capital that there are, there's good wealthy money and there is bad wealthy money. And by that, I mean, not every individual who qualifies as an angel, angel investor, who qualifies as an accredited investor, which is really the standard, not all of them actually know what they're doing. And not all of them quite understand that most startups fail. And not all of them understand that not every startup is going to turn into Google or Facebook or sale, you know, pick the company that's extremely successful. And for those that are particularly unseasoned, I think they have a fantasy that the Indianapolis startup they're funding is going to be the next big billion dollar company. And that that is as likely as, uh, as anything else. So you, you really want to pick these people carefully. I, uh, what you're saying about finding folks who are bringing great experience to the table and who can offer 
advice and counsel and leadership in a variety of ways is fundamentally important. I mean, if you can find a person that's willing to give you money, but also give you time and attention and experience, that's, that's of great value. To address the piece uh, you mentioned about, you know, the conflict of interest of someone who has an, you know, a, an interest for them, themselves or their investment group, rather than uh, maybe what's in the best company, the company's best interest. I think that sort of front end interview is where you might at least get a snapshot of what they want to do. You know, so the question would be, how does your team typically engage in companies? What do you expect when we need additional capital down the road? What do you like to see there? How do you like to participate? Do you participate? Uh, and then also having, again, that roadmap of what you might need down the road, you might have a better understanding of what that group's position might be when the time actually will come. So if you can go to that individual and say, what do you like to do for follow-on rounds? Because we might have a need here in a few years to go raise $5 million, and we're thinking of doing it with these kinds of groups. If you can have that kind of clear-eyed conversation on the front end, you'll at least get an answer. I'm not saying they have to stick to it. You might not get it in writing. But you'll at least have an answer that you can refer back to uh, if things go sideways or they just don't follow the uh, path that you expected. But the interview process there, I think, is just as important as it is for any other you know, party that you might engage with. I want to switch gears now. Please. Only because I have so many questions. Yes. All right. So I'm going to ask you some questions around your experience as an angel investor. Are there any disclaimers you want to put on that first in terms of like people soliciting you for investment after they hear this podcast? Because yeah. I'm more interested. The reason why I want to do it is I'm more interested in getting into the mind. Of, you know, we did an episode with Bob Carlson a year ago, maybe a little over a year ago. Bob's a local angel investor. And, and for me, the value of that talking with him and talking with you is for if you're a founder listening to this and you're thinking about pitching an angel investor, I would love for them to hear inside the mind of an angel investor, right? Like, what are you looking for? What are the, how do you think about a a deal that's going to be a good fit for you? How do you think about what an exit could look like? Because if the more they can understand, like what's motivating the angel investor to make that investment, the more interesting that could be. It's less about like, you know, I've, I've had vision tech on, I've had gravity or not gravity, uh, elevate ventures on and hope to have some other venture groups on. And, in that case, it is a little bit more about like, hey, if you want to pitch Elevate, you should probably go listen to the Ting episode and hear what yeah. Ting likes to see in a in sure. a pitch, right? But that is very much you know focused on that versus in talking with an individual an angel investor. It's more about the characteristics and the patterns you could pull from this discussion. Yeah, that could be interesting. So, with that, any other disclaimers you would want to add? No, just uh, we uh, no no disclaimer. Okay. I don't think so. All no. right, you're a brave man. <laughs> All right. How much when when you sit down and, and look at it? Well, maybe even before you sit down with the founder, one an, an email comes in your inbox and says, hey, there's a potential opportunity. Would you want to take a look? What's the first filter you apply as to whether or not that is worth your time? I think the first would be how did how they found me? Oh, so it would be, more. well, if I receive a an email that's truly a cold open, my likelihood of engaging with it is lower than if Mike Kelly sends over someone that uh, you're really enamored with and you think the world of and you say, you should really g- give this person 15 minutes. In that case, I'm happy to do it because it's, it's from a source that I, I highly regard and, and would be, I'd, I'd be happy to give the person time to understand what um, they're pitching. The truly cold open, I think is, it has to be something that I will be, will speak to me personally. And it could simply be a personal note. But if I'm getting a sort of broad, a bro- you know, an email that's broadcast to a thousand people that they just happen to get an email list or cobbled together an email list of people that might be interested. I'm just not going to spend a lot of time on that. But if they actually take some time to understand who I might be as an individual and what I might be interested in, I might take a little bit more time to, to at least understand what they're doing. So the, this, the place from which they found me or the person who may have referred them over is, is probably the step one for me. Nice. Then that first 15, 30 minute meeting, what are you trying to figure out in that first meeting? I think I try to understand the individual who is pitching it to me as best I can. I care about the person probably much, much more than the thing they're doing. 
So the thing they're doing is important. Don't get me wrong. I'm not going to invest if the thing they're doing is, is idiotic. As referenced <laughs> by our our 30-minute coffee conversation that turned out to be two hours of you asking me tons of questions about my personal yeah. life. Well, it's, uh, it's, you know, <laughs> it's the thing I do really well. Um, I'm surprised you, I haven't taken over this podcast. You do um, it very well. No, I mean, I just... The, the people are the thing you're investing in ultimately. And, and so the... The, the thing that they're working on could be the greatest idea I've seen in years. But if they are not someone I trust or feel confident about or their leadership approach is, you know, backwards, I am not likely to spend a whole lot of time, even if the idea is a home run. Because it's just even if the idea does take them places and the company turns out to be a great, you know, great success story, I don't know how much I'm going to want to be along for the ride of someone who I don't really like or trust, or have a lot of confidence in. The great ride that it might be could only last as long as that particular bad actor may allow it to happen. And, and so I would constantly be in a position of feeling like, yeah, this company is great, and there's a great possibility for a wonderful outcome, unless, you know, John Doe over here screws it up because I never trusted him to begin with. So I, I'm first and foremost evaluating the character of the individual and trying to understand who they are and what drives them and how they might lead and what they're doing. And then it's, you know, if I'm not at all familiar with the space that they're engaged with, then I am expecting them to explain to me what it is they're doing within the marketplace and to, you know, very clearly tell me about product market fit. And if they don't have an idea on how to explain product market fit, I'm going to quickly be disinclined to engage further. I'd say, too, you know, all the things we're talking about, like best practices when it comes to, um, you know, founding, founding teams and, and the like, raising capital, all that. The more time I have seen that they've put into that, the more trust I have that they're going to put in the time that they need to do on a range of other things that they're going to face. It is the sort of like move fast and break things mantra that I am hoping not to see uh, from these folks. I want to see actually some rigor in their planning. And um, if they're just, you know, essentially subscribing to the things they gleaned from the latest Steve Jobs biopic, well, that's the quickest way to get me to leave. I'm not, I'm just, that's not who I'm looking at. I mean, there are plenty of angels, I'm sure, who are just looking for Steve Jobs too. I am not. I'm interested in folks who are doing more than reading biographies of founding heroes that they may have and much more interested in getting knee deep in the work that they need to do to move the company along and be very successful. And that's not really, you know, the gleanings of their latest business book. It's, it's usually, they may not even have time for that. They're, they're so engaged in the work and making whatever they're doing or producing successful that they're not sort of merely being a fanboy and pretending that they're, you know, the next, next person up. Can you give examples of where you've seen product market fit articulated very clearly and and then what in that made led you to that belief that like yes they 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 have it or maybe they don't have it yet but they understand what it's going to look like when they get there you know i'll give you a generic example not to to point out any one group but um the very the finest examples i think are often where they They'll explain the market landscape as it exists and as they believe it exists. And they'll, they'll hopefully come up with some really concrete information that allows me to reliably sift through what they're describing. And so I can also kind of do my own research if, if necessary, uh, which I'd likely do anyway. But, um, but then they would share the product market fit and how it could go wrong. I really appreciate the candor of someone who says... Here's the product market fit, but the problem is we could have these failures or problems that arise in these one or more areas, or we have competitors that could be coming down the pike in these areas that could eat into the product market fit or just totally usurp the market entirely. It's that candor that I think really sets founders apart from one another. I, I'm all for the best story you can, you can put forward about a company, but there is an honesty that I would hope to see in an individual and in a company that allows me to go in with clearer eyes as to the possibilities of, a, of the downside. So it's, 
the most successful versions of these that I've seen, I think, are are telling the full story as best they can, but that also includes the the possible pitfalls that could arise. Any hard and fast flags or no's that that you you have encountered or think you could encounter that would very quickly get you to walk away from a deal? That could be like a deal term. It could be something you see on a cap table. It could be uh, and, and it could be any number of things. Well, I mean, you know, not to just keep banging the drum, but it's the if the personality of the individual across from me is is problematic, that's that's a, a huge no. Okay. I mean, I don't care how good the company is. Um, I'm just not going to be very interested. That's just kind of a personal thing. Others may have a greater willingness to accept bad behavior or bad actors in the goal of making money. I, that's just not something I'm going to put up with. So the individual matters, you know, fundamentally. Beyond that, I would say... If I notice that they don't really have an understanding of what they're presenting to me, then that's a big, big problem. So they can come to me and, and use all the sort of terms of art that, that they've picked up through, you know, 20 minutes on TechCrunch. Uh, but if they can't really understand what it means uh, sort of to go through the details of, say, a convertible note instrument, and they don't understand the mechanisms for conversion and how it could happen, what it would look like, and they don't really understand a, what a ceiling is or a discount rate, and, and they don't understand how those might work. Uh, in a document, then they haven't taken the, the time uh, or paid attention enough to really understand what they're doing. And that would flag for me, the, the flag is that, well, maybe they're doing this in other areas that are much more uh, important for the longevity of this company, because maybe they don't understand how their widget fits in the marketplace. And yeah, maybe the sales pipeline isn't what they projected. Yeah. And, and you know, speaking of sales pipelines, I mean, the, the I have seen countless occasions where we get projections from somebody that they've internally put together. And you say, well, okay, how do you, how do you, where are your assumptions on this 10% growth year over year, whatever it is? And they, they cannot articulate at all or have not thought at all about the fact that they have made extraordinary assumptions. They just think, well, no, but 10% seems reasonable. I'm not saying that you, there could theoretically be scenarios in which that is the very best you can come up with. It's just the best reasonable assumption you're making. I'd say that's extremely rare. More often than not, you can come up with real projections based on a sound methodology. And maybe you need to hire people to help you do that. There are companies around town that do that. And in every you know, market in which entrepreneurs are going to be working, there are people that help you with those projections. And you should utilize them. But uh, the sort of like rose-colored glass view of how, the, you know, how you're going to get to hockey stick growth, I just, you know. How much do you let that... That that thing you just said uh, with there are other people that can help them. How much do you let other partners, investors, people they've been working with influence whether or not you make an investment decision? That's a great question. I do think having good if they have a team around them that I really like and know and trust, then that that gives me a boost of confidence about their likelihood of success because they you know can I know that they're going to get good counsel. It's not the reason I'm making the decision ultimately, but it could be a good influencing factor. But surrounding yourself with people that are giving you good advice and actually taking the good advice, listening out and, and hearing what they, those parties have to say, that's, you know, if, if you're a one-man show, one-woman show, and you're just kind of flying by the seat of your pants, it could work, but good luck. That's, that's really hard. But if you have great advisors who you can turn to and do turn to, turn to I will have a greater sense of confidence in the viability of the business for sure. Do you have a thesis for the investments that you make? And what I mean by that is, are there specific industries that you look at? Is it a specific stage of company? Is it a numbers game? I want to invest in 20 companies a year because I know that 15 of them are going to fail. Is So I do more smaller investments than fewer big investments. How do you think about, when you think about your portfolio, how do you think about it? Or do you? No, I, I do. A lot of what uh, we choose to invest in is it's, it, it's, it's a few different factors, I'd say. We're much more willing to greenlight conservative investments in things like real estate, where there's very little downside risk relative to, say, a startup where the, the risk is much greater because you, you just don't know where the exit might be and, and the like. Uh, so we, we do a healthy amount there. But um, for, say, just startups and entrepreneurial endeavors, we invest in things that I think we like. So that that are interesting to us, that we think have a good possibility of success, even if the success is tempered in some way. In fact, maybe that's a good thing. It's almost, I'm going to use kind of a, 
I'm going to use real estate as a good example. You know, there are various kinds of real estate. There's like A-class property, which is like the nicest thing in the nicest area. And it's often brand new. And then there's, you know, various grades of property. There could be B-plus property, C-property. You know, if you're getting, say, uh, B-property or B-minus property, you are probably investing something that's going to turn a profitable return for you, but you're not going to be getting outsized returns on investment than, you know, what what the market is typically presenting. Whereas an A-class property might give you crazy outsized returns, but it's extraordinary risk. And that's how I think a lot of startups are. Not all startups, though, are trying to be a unicorn. Some just want to be, uh, you know, a $30 million enterprise. And I mean, we've talked about those enterprises time and again. I think if you actually have an awareness that that's where the highest and best outcome would be is to be a $30 million enterprise and not a unicorn, that actually is really compelling to hear about because uh, it sort of speaks to an awareness of who the company can be and what it does and maybe what it doesn't do. It's, uh, it's, it's probably a little bit more risky for me in my own mind, like when I'm thinking about whether it's a good investment decision or not. If, if all I'm hearing is, you know, we're going to get to 10 figures here in the next five years, I'm like, no, no, you're not. And uh, what, <laughs> what, what, uh, what makes you think that that is possible? So the pie in the sky visions for like success are are tough to tough to really take, and and so the the realistic interpretation of of where companies can go, I accept that so much more readily than than the alternative. When somebody shows up to give you a a pitch, what are you expecting them to? So uh, in terms of actual artifacts, what are you expecting them to have available? from a package investor package perspective? Yeah. Um, good question. It depends. We like to see, you know, a deck that is simple, not terribly long, and hopefully includes, you know, actual financials to the extent they exist and projections that are actually possible based on sound assumptions that they can articulate. So if that is in one package, that's I don't need a whole lot else. If there is an example of the widget they're producing, I'd love to see that. Um, I just had, in fact, uh, I had some products sent to me from another state. It was a beverage company that sent over some of their products to try. And so I was really grateful that they were willing to do that because it's, it's the actual widget that they're producing. Yeah. But, but it, just a, a clear understanding of what it is they're doing and trying to achieve with the sort of additional information that really colors how they are planning for the future, that's, that's what I'm looking for. If they can only do projections without assumptions, it's not really going to be that compelling to me. Or if they can't answer the assumptions they're making in a clear manner, I'm, I'm going to be a little worried. But the package really just needs to be a deck perhaps with the financials, who they are, where they are, going, product market fit, and the clear assumptions they're making on a going forward basis, including perhaps the competitors that could step in or already exist. That's, that's what I want to see. If somebody says there are no competitors, what goes through your mind? Um, that's I, I. My first instinct would be that they are uh, naive, or maybe they have a great idea that has never been thought of. I suppose that's possible. I think for most companies, though, that are so early stage that they say, you know, we're we're just getting off the ground, and there are no competitors in this space. It's likely they have not thought of all the big long-standing enterprise companies that could enter that space very quickly with a lot more resources. It wouldn't be hard, I'd say, for almost any startup that, that would articulate that, who would say, listen, we have no competitors. It would not be hard for a handful of well-seasoned you know, vets in this space or any space in, in the VC world or angel world to probably prove that wrong. I think, I think in fact, a lot of companies... Uh, early stage companies, their blind spot is is the you know uh, advantage that these enterprise companies have, particularly with resources. You know, it's it's um, it's not hard for them to uh, mimic the work of a company that's been churning for two years from from starting at zero in a matter of weeks or even less. And um, that's just because they have a tremendous amount of resources that they can throw into the mix. And I, yeah, I, I just wouldn't have a lot of confidence if that's actually the answer. And if the answer was the complete opposite direction, our competitors are Facebook, Amazon, Google, you know, some of the largest companies on the planet. Wow. What's your gut reaction to that? Yeah, it's actually not. I mean, I don't, 
I don't have a problem if that's the answer. I, I think, um, uh, again, it's sort of the honesty of, of their situation. Where we see, I think, the best traction for these companies is usually when they've identified something like that. And they say, well, in fact, yes, uh, maybe Facebook is a competitor, but our expectation is that Facebook is the acquirer of our business down the road because we're going to do it better and we're going to do it differently. And here's how. And and so I don't have a problem if they're if they can identify a number of really big hitters who are in their space. But then, you know, in the same token, they need to address how they're going to be different or better. But having that idea, we actually haven't really talked about it too much, but having a clear idea as to the possible acquirers or interested parties or, or maybe even parties like, you know, the Facebooks that might invest or Salesforce, even better example, where they, you know, their venture arm invests in groups they often like to acquire down the road. If you have a clear idea that this is the group that would want to invest with us because of XYZ, and then, you know, the idea then would be even later on, they might acquire us. If you have an idea that that's, that's fantastic. All right. I've kept you ridiculously over time. You haven't even looked at your phone. Oh, <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. I, I probably need to get you out of here. <laughs> yeah. Um, Happy to come back though. Oh, awesome. I will probably take you up on that. Uh, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Yeah. So, um, you know, our website is wormsarelegal.com. Welcome to email me. It's barry at wormsarelegal.com. Yeah, we're, uh, we're in the broader Bull area and, and uh, you're always welcome to stop by and just grab coffee. So uh, our doors are open. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been great fun being on. Thank you for having me. Barry, thank you so much. Man. Absolutely. I appreciate yeah. it. If you're thinking of launching a SaaS product, startup competitors can provide data on your closest competitors, survey potential users, or provide other product validation services. Learn more at startupcompetitors.com.